0: Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is Synchronicity and the Afterlife. My guest is Sharon Rawlett, who is a philosopher who has taught ethics at Brandeis University. She is the author of The Feeling of Value, Moral Realism Grounded in Phenomenal Consciousness the science and significance of coincidences, the supreme victory of the heart, a memoir of love, loss, and synchronicity, and most recently, Beyond Death, the best evidence for the survival of human consciousness, this interview was recorded in a hotel room in Las Vegas, where both of us were attending the award ceremony for the Bigelow Institute Essay Competition. And now I'll switch over to that video. Sharon, why don't we start with a little bit about your background? You got your doctoral degree in philosophy. Yes.
1: yes.
0: With a specialty in what?
1: In ethics, actually. Well, metaethics. So like the metaphysics and epistemology behind ethics. So uh, even though it's a degree in ethics, I was already really interested in these questions of the nature of reality and how, how does ethics and value fit into what is real in the world.
0: So there you are with a specialty in ethics, a very important branch of philosophy, and you're about to potentially launch an academic career and you made a decision to drop out of academia and become a freelance writer.
1: Right. So that was really kind of my plan all along. Mm -hmm. Um, I, From a very young age, I loved writing, and I've always been a writer of of fiction and nonfiction, um, but also been a deep thinker, too. I mean, I remember having conversations in middle school about you know, the nature of the universe and the Mm -hmm. different dimensions. So both of those things have always been part of what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, when I was in college, I um, discovered philosophy and loved the debates that we would have about these existential questions. And when I found out that I could go on to grad school and continue studying that for a few more years, um, that seemed like the ideal thing to do. But uh, once I was out of grad school, I did actually, um, I taught for a couple of years at Brandeis University, Mm -hmm. and that was lovely. Uh, But I also realized that I didn't want to be constrained just by the field of academic philosophy. I had a lot of other things that I wanted to explore, like fiction writing. Mm -hmm. Um, But honestly, at the time, parapsychology wasn't on my radar. Um, it, It wasn't really until I had left academia that I started discovering this whole other field that has just become so fascinating for me.
0: And you've written a book about synchronicities.
1: Yes. Yeah. So that, um, some experiences that I had after I left academia, sort of um, some synchronistic experiences made me start to think about, well, maybe there is more to this world than I realized. Because I I wasn't a materialist. I, I've always had a very healthy respect for consciousness mm-hmm. and the fact that it, it's not well explained by the physicalist paradigm, but at the same time, I sort of had a, a mechanistic view of of the mental world. And experiencing synchronicity broke me out of that. I think it just made me realize it felt like I was interacting with some other intelligence. And and in the first few experiences I had weren't. They weren't really in-your-face, sort of paranormal, so so I was still kind of on the fence about it. I, I wanted to start exploring and see what I could find, and I read a couple of really wonderful books um, at that time. One of them was one of Ian Stevenson's books, um, which got me into the whole survival question very early on, um, but, but over the following years, I started to have these more more supernatural sort of coincidences these really blatant ones. And I finally got to the point where I was like, no, I know that this is real. I know that this is not something that the current, you know, science, mainstream science um, can explain. And once I got to that point, I was like, okay, I have to write a book about this. I, I'm willing to go, go out now and, and put my name on something that talks about this because I had that, that strong enough experience that I had that personal conviction.
0: In other words, you began by reading about these things. And then, as you've been reading about it, then you began having personal experiences.
1: Well, the personal experiences got stronger. Okay. So the, the first ones were just sort of suggestive. And then I started researching it. And then, you know, a few years later, then they really started to get strong.
0: It gives me the impression, and I think it might be true in my own case, that the more you read and the more you study, the more you open yourself up to experiences.
1: It does seem to be that way, which makes sense if if reality is ultimately mental, Mm -hmm. then the world that we experience is responsive to what we're thinking about, what we care about. And so the more we are Thinking about those questions and and investigating them for ourselves, the more that those phenomena show themselves to us.
0: Now, one of the things, if I recall, in uh, your essay for the Bigelow competition, one of the categories that you brought to bear as evidence for survival was synchronicity.
1: Yes, um, and I, I was actually on the fence about doing it because uh, because I don't I don't think that. Synchronicity is, if you only had the the evidence from synchronicity, it would be hard to make the case for survival because synchronicity is very idiosyncratic. So it's, it's very much, um, the evidence that comes from there is very reliant on an intimate knowledge of the personality of the person who has passed on Mm -hmm. and also of the person who's having the experiences. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So it's hard to convey to a third person or to a researcher the evidential quality of what you've experienced, right. but I think that w- when you look at synchronistic experiences in light of all of the other evidence that you have, um, in in light of you know, apparitions, um, mediumship, near-death experiences, memories of previous lives, viewed in that context, the synchronistic experiences give us an extra level of. Evidence not only that the personalities of the people that we love um, who have died are still there, but that they do continue to communicate with mm-hmm. us. And, and shows a bigger picture of how that communication happens. Because I th- actually think that synchronicities are one of the most common ways in which our deceased loved ones communicate with us. Uh, and it's it can be very easy to dismiss those experiences, and I think that's one of the reasons it's so important to know the rest of the survival literature, because you need to put those those coincidence experiences in that context.
0: So you're taking a holistic approach.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, which is very similar to the approach that you take as well on this question.
0: Well, I took an overview Yeah. Uh, uh, approach, but I... And of course, I'm very much aware of synchronicities. My life has been shaped by synchronicities. Yes. <laughs> uh, still, I wouldn't—I did not include synchronicities as a separate category of evidence pointing towards survival.
1: Right. Well, and, yeah, and I think they part of the reason that I did is I have—I've uh, have so much background in that area. I mean, I've, yeah. I've written a book that's about this thick on on coincidence, and mm-hmm. the largest chapter in that book is about. Synchronicities related to people who have passed on Mm -hmm. so I had I had done a lot of research on that topic so that I can't write an entire essay about uh, Evidence for life after death and not talk about this thing. That's my specialty So I really wanted to include that
0: to me the message behind Synchronicities is very basic to the question of survival, which is uh, What I infer from synchronicities is that the universe is conscious
1: Yes Yes, the yeah, the, phys- the things that we think of as physical mm-hmm. around us, um, whether they're physical objects or even the sort of processes that are going on um, around us to create the events that we experience, they are responsive. Mm-hmm. Responsive to intention, responsive to desire, responsive to need, too, because a lot of times the synchronicities that happen to us, they're not necessarily things that we want, but they turn out to be things that take us where we need it to go. Um, and certainly, in the case of of survival coincidences, uh, that's the case. Probably because you know, sometimes there are people who they've had loved ones passed on, and it, maybe this is actually the majority of cases. Uh, they have ambiguous feelings about the people that they have lost. You know, it's not always you know my beloved Aunt Joan, and you know I wish I could just be with her again. A lot of times we have. Um, Mixed feelings, or we have lingering guilt about relationships and things. And they're not necessarily things that we want to explore. We may just kind of want to put that aside. Mm -hmm. Um, But synchronicities will sometimes pop up to bring that back to the fore and um, help us to deal with things that we're maybe shy about Mm -hmm. touching.
0: Well, it does strike me that one of the real fears that people have uh, regarding the afterlife, and I think there's a lot of fear in in the popular culture mm-hmm. about it, horror stories of every sort, and uh, yeah. ghost stories, is is the idea that the, the dead might be aware of some secret that we're hiding from the world.
1: <laughs> yeah, the idea that... Um yeah, well, that the universe is conscious mm-hmm. can be a little intimidating when you really don't want people to know what's going on in your head, the idea that others can read your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, well, I think there are two things that, for me, at least mitigate that, mm-hmm. that fear. Um, one of them is that I do think that, yes, the universe is aware of of your deepest thoughts and feelings, but it is benevolently aware. And so it's not trying to use those things against you. Sometimes it can feel, because sometimes the universe does, uh, you know, it causes things to happen that some people would call negative coincidences. You know, it may reveal things about you um, or put you in a situation where you don't get what you want. You're very disappointed about something that happens. But it turns out that going through that experience releases you from the fear that you had. And actually, I mean, that's, one of the the major changes that has happened in my own life it, uh, was a a really difficult separation from a romantic partner that I had. Yeah. And some, it, you know, as far as I was concerned, that was the worst thing that could have happened to me.
0: You wrote a whole book about it.
1: I did because it was such a transformative experience for mm-hmm. me um, to live that, and it re- it released so many of the fears that I had in mm-hmm. myself about that and, and it helped me know myself in a much deeper way so yes the universe knows you very deeply and it may put you in some uncomfortable situations but it's for it's for your greater good it's it's to help yeah. you know yourself better and to grow
0: I have spoken to people who have suffered horrible horrible tragedies like uh One man is in a wheelchair, completely disfigured. His fingers are missing. He's been in multiple accidents, uh, but he happens to be at the same time a world-class public speaker, and he will go around the world and tell people if he had to do it all over again, knowing (laughs) all the things that he has learned and benefited from these multiple accidents he's been through, he'd do it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I and I certainly feel that way about, I mean, I haven't had something that tragic happen Mm -hmm. to me, but to the level that I have experienced tragedy in my life, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't give any of it back.
0: I mean, most people would rather avoid a romantic breakup.
1: Right. Yeah. You'd rather not have your heart broken. But if it, if it happens to have it bring you this amazing gift, Afterward is I think that's what the universe does It it takes the things that you thought were the worst things that could happen to you and it gives you a gift through them
0: Well, I think it was Einstein or at least I read on the internet that this is an (laughs) Einstein quote It may not actually be but as I recall he said the most important question we can ask is is the universe friendly?
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes Yeah, and I and I think ultimately it is Mm -hmm. Uh, um i think the the scarier paranormal experiences do get more press and and the press likes to take experiences that weren't scary and make them look scary yeah. uh they they do get more press uh but i think when you look at the whole swath of these experiences that happen to people that 95% of them are are clearly experiences that are benevolent and that are friendly um, and that are helping you along your path.
0: I hear from viewers of this program uh, to the effect of, like, you know, say that to the people in Biafra, or say say that to, <laughs> to the people who were killed in the Holocaust. and uh, They always come back with something like that. Mm-hmm. There, there are terrible examples of uh, suffering.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, and certainly I wouldn't... I don't go around telling people who have have led much more difficult lives than mine, well, look on the bright side and see what the universe is doing for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there are also examples of people, people like Viktor Frankl, who mm-hmm. lived through um, you know, living in a concentration camp in yeah. the Holocaust, and and that he writes about how he was brought to this experience of meaning and understanding what the most vital piece of human experience is through that and so it it does take it does take work a lot of the time you and it and it works you over i mean it's 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 not easy to take those difficult experiences and transform them into something um, life-affirming but if you're willing to open yourself up to that the potential is definitely there
0: well it's very interesting that you have a background in ethics and <laughs> now you've written this Bigelow award-winning essay on evidence for survival, because it seems to me that uh, if we survive uh, the demise of our bodies, that has important implications for ethics.
1: I think it does. Absolutely. Um, and actually what I'm hoping to do uh it, the next stage of my work is to try to integrate some of these different directions that I've gone philosophically and integrate the ethics. Cause my very first um, book that I published uh, in 2016 was uh, about meta ethics and about the, the reality of value in the world that um, goodness and badness are not just something we invented, but they really do exist as part of the fabric of the universe And to try to integrate that with all of the paranormal research that I've done and the synchronistic stuff and say, well, how does this affect how we make ethical decisions? Because I think for me, the most important thing is to understand that ethics is important and ethics is real because our the the mainstream point of view right now is that the physical mechanistic world is all there is and and we have sort of evolved this um concern about how we treat other people but that's sort of an accident of evolution that we have that and so yeah we as humans care about that because we're humans but at a a deeper level that that stuff really isn't real mm-hmm and i i don't think that's right i think we as conscious beings are deeply in touch with something that goes much much deeper than the physical level of the universe mm-hmm. and at that level i mean value is is much realer than the physical objects that mm-hmm. you can touch it's it's much realer and it's much more important and so finding a way to help to to change this mainstream view where we take the mechanistic physical world as the paradigm for what reality is and what is subjective uh, and say no that that doesn't make any sense. Reality is so much richer than that Re- reality offers so much more potential for for hope and inspiration, but you have to look inside the mind and inside your conscious experience you can't just look at physical objects because yeah you won't find it there
0: no the physical world does seem to operate according to mechanistic principles at least up to a point
1: right about about probably 99 percent of the time and then every once in a while you get physical objects responding to your thoughts and <laughs> it's a little bit yeah. um uh yeah it shakes your worldview, or which sh- shook mine anyway
0: Well, as a philosopher, I often, not not that I consider myself a philosopher, but I have a PhD, (laughs) Uh, it seems as if the argument uh, for ethical behavior based on the afterlife could work in either direction. It's like Mm. a double-edged sword. that Someone might think, well, since you're going to survive your death anyway, what does it matter if I kill you?
1: So, yeah, you've got that idea. Yeah, that death is not as important as, um, our ethical codes have made it out to murder. be that, you know, murder yep. isn't a big deal if, you know, if somebody goes on after this life. And on the one hand, I mean, I do think that it's, it's true that our culture has had a very deep fear of death. Um, and, um, as sort of the ultimate bad thing that could happen to a person. I don't think that's right. I I think um death can be very liberating and that there's a there's a whole other life that we live after it. But at the same time, it, once you realize what death really is, that it's not the end of something, it's just a change mm-hmm. in your mode of consciousness, it doesn't necessarily mean that it, it's fine to kill someone. Right. Um because you're still um you're still making a unilateral decision about whether that person is going to be able to continue to live in this body and interact with people in this world through this body. And uh, yes, death is maybe not the worst thing that can happen to you, but it still cuts short um, all of the the plans and hopes that you had for this existence in this body.
0: As well as the hopes and plans that other people may have had in relationships.
1: Absolutely.
0: In in a way, one might say that murder is more like theft. Uh, You're stealing a person's future.
1: Right, in a very permanent way, in a way you could never make restitution for, you could never give them back their life. Um, Because even though, you know, I do uh, believe in reincarnation because of the evidence that I have seen, so I do think that souls can come back and they can live on... Uh, the Earth again, but the, it's not going to be the same life. It's going to be a different life. It's going to be in a different body. It's going to be with a different family. And so, when you when you stop someone's life, you have you have ended that portion of their experience in this world, and that is a that's still a very grave thing, a very serious thing.
0: I had a discussion not long ago with a, an Indian scholar of East Indian scholar mm-hmm. about the Bhagavad Gita. A great ethical treatise, which is basically saying uh, it's okay to go to war if if you have a a, a righteous cause, if if it's your duty, because uh, you didn't create life, you can't really destroy life. That's up to God. So you have to do your uh, dharma, your duty, mm.
1: mm-hmm.
0: and be detached from the consequences. Do do what's right and, and let the chips fall where they may.
1: Yeah, you bringing up consequences. That's really interesting because so in the book that I've written about ethics um, I talk about not only the goodness and badness are objective qualities in the world but that uh, all things considered it's better to have more goodness in the world and that that should be the ultimate aim of our actions is to create more uh, good conscious experience rather than bad. But I do think at the same time that when we're actually making, you know, practical decisions in our life, sometimes thinking purely about the consequences can be counterproductive. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it is important to do your duty or to fulfill the role that you have been given uh, without worrying about what's going to happen. Not because what's going to happen isn't important, because I do think that it is, and that's ultimately where, that, that, that is what's ultimately valuable in the world, but because you can't control that. The consequences that happen, um, yeah, yeah to some degree, I mean, you can, there are certain cases where you can be, sure about what the consequences of your action are going to be at least to a large degree Um, and in those cases I think it's very clear what you ought to do but there are so many other cases when you're talking about war anything that has to deal with um, a very complex society you know these larger questions of of our existence Mm -hmm. it's very difficult to know what the ultimate outcome of your actions is going to be and so you have to do what you feel um I would say would you feel called to, because I do think that, that we have not all of us are aware of it, but we do have an intuitive connection to some larger force uh that lets us know what our role is in this world. And we can either choose to accept that and to go along with it, or we can say, No, I I don't want that and go a different way. Uh but when we're fulfilling our role, we ultimately have to trust that the universe that placed us in that position and that pushed us down this path is going to make the consequences work out in, in a positive, life-giving way, um, not just for us, but for all of the people that we're going to affect. We don't have the ability to make sure all of that happens, and ultimately, there is a huge amount of trust. Mm-hmm. So I am a, a consequentialist about ethics. I do think that the consequences are ultimately what what makes or breaks the, the goodness of your actions. But I I don't think we can always reason from consequentialist principles. We there is a, a trust that we have to have in the
0: well, especially because we don't always know what the consequences we, will be.
1: We don't. We really don't and and the world is only getting more and more complicated um, by the year. And so we have to do our best I mean, we we certainly have a duty to to get as as much information as we can, but ultimately yeah it it's out of our hands mm-hmm. and, and hopefully is in the hands of a greater intelligence
0: as we said earlier, I think your work on synchronicity suggests that uh we're embedded in a greater intelligence.
1: The overwhelming evidence points in that direction i mean i've just i have i have had my own experiences and too many experiences of of other people that I have, um, interacted with uh, not to believe in a greater intelligence. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that it's always easy. It doesn't mean that it, I, I'm sure you have these as well, but you know, there are always moments where you doubt, especially when you're in a, a difficult situation and things like, it seems like things just aren't working out the way that you expected them to, or, you know, you're worried about how things are going to turn out. And like, maybe I, maybe I was wrong about all of this, but at least in my own experience, each of those moments of doubt, when I've chosen to just trust and see what happens, really uh, semi-miraculous things happen and and things change in a way that I never would have expected. And once again, I have, I have to say, okay, yeah, I'm not running the show. Mm-hmm. Somebody else is smarter than me. Can you give
0: an example from your own experience?
1: Uh, we were talking about um, the the breakup that I had years ago. Um, several years after that, um, I had... A, I, I, the breakup was on friendly terms, mm-hmm. um, but eventually I fell, fell out of touch with this person. But a few years later, I kept having these synchronistic experiences that kept, that, that were connected to him and, and kept bringing him to mind. And it was really getting very, very insistent. Well, I was already married to someone else. Uh, and so this was really, this was not something that I wanted to deal with. I just mm-hmm. wanted to move on with my life. Yep. And, and it was very difficult for my husband to deal with as well. And so I kept trying to push those, those synchronicities away. And mm-hmm. um just like, it, it'll just stop if I, yeah. if I don't pay attention to it. Well, it didn't. And eventually, it got to the point where it's like, well, I, I don't know what's going on. But what I do know is that I have to to reconnect with this person mm-hmm. and find out. Because I had this feeling that something was going on in his life that I was supposed to know about. Mm-hmm. I was supposed to reconnect with him somehow. So eventually I talked to my husband about it and he was like, okay, just write to him and find out. Um, and so I did and with so much trepidation in my heart, because I just I I didn't know what was going to happen with all of this. Um, but when I wrote to him, I discovered that he had just had his first child and um, like in the time that I was having all of these synchronicities. And so where I had been worried that this was going to just sort of explode my life in some way, instead it showed me that we had made the right decision and separating that we had each gone on our paths, that he was happy and mm-hmm. joyful in his new life and I could be the same in mine and so it turned out to be this very positive experience where I had had no idea mm-hmm. that it could be that they mm-hmm. could turn out so so wonderfully
0: in, in other words had you not reached out to him you would have been carrying some pain
1: yes yeah there was there was there were unresolved feelings there there, there was always this question well you know, is is he unhappy w- where he is? Um, and to know that he wasn't was, was so relieving um, and just solidified that both of us were on the right path.
0: And what drove you to reach out to him, even though you had subsequently remarried, was a series of coincidences or dreams?
1: Yeah. So the biggest one that sort of kicked off all of the synchronicities was um, I had... I had already been feeling like there was something that I was supposed to know about him. So he was very much on my mind. Um, but again, I was trying to just ignore it. Mm-hmm. And then this one weekend, I was with some friends um, uh, in rural Pennsylvania. And we were trying, this was an area we didn't know. And so we were trying to find a grocery store. And so I was driving with a friend, and she asked her phone to find a grocery store nearby. And her phone brought up a list of grocery stores, and she handed it to me because she was driving. So I'm holding her phone that I've never touched before in my life. Um, It's got a list of grocery stores in Pennsylvania. And I hit one button. I hit the map button because I wanted to see where these stores were in relationship to each other. And when that map came up, it wasn't showing me grocery stores in Pennsylvania anymore. It was showing me five grocery stores in France, which is where my my ex lives. Um, and I didn't know, it. I recognized one of the city names at the time, but I wasn't sure exactly where in France it was. When I got home a few days later, I Googled it and I discovered that it was in the region where my ex lived. And when I uh, when I saw that, I mean, that blew me away first, but there was just an intuition that came along with it that was like, well, if this phone that I was holding was showing me this place in Brittany, France, where he lives, maybe it was showing me where the exact location where he was on that day. And I Googled his name and the date. I mean, I didn't know what I was going to find. Why would that even be on the internet? But it turned out that he had written on his blog that he was going to be at an event that was two miles from the grocery store that I had seen on the, the phone. So, you know, here I am in, in the middle of Pennsylvania and this GPS suddenly mm. locates me where um, Isn't he's that supposed fascinating? to be. That was honestly, that was the event where I was like, There's no, there's, n- you can't explain this in a normal way. Something else is going on. I know that phones mm-hmm. don't do this, they're not supposed to do this.
0: Right. Presumably, the phone is a totally mechanistic device, it doesn't have a mind of its own.
1: Supposedly, it's, <laughs> it is. <laughs> but it's in that moment, it was certainly behaving as though it was trying to tell me something.
0: You, in your paper for the Bigelow competition have, as you we said earlier, taken a holistic approach. And in a way, synchronicity seemed to underlie much of everything else that happens. Mm-hmm. What other evidence would you regard as, as some of the strongest evidence you've encountered for survival?
1: Since starting to research survival, the thing that has been the most most bothersome to me is the super psi or living agent psi hypothesis. Yeah. Um, this idea that our own psychic abilities could somehow simulate the continuing presence of our deceased loved ones. Yeah. So, you know, as a philosopher, <laughs> you know, I've, I've, I see the logic in that and mm-hmm. I w- want to know okay, well, if we theoretically could be doing this, what's to say that we aren't? So the piece of evidence that I finally discovered that I felt really really just blew that out of the water was, well, actually two things. So reciprocal apparitions and, and reciprocal dreams and other things as well, but specifically reciprocal apparitions. So... The living agent psi hypothesis says, well, you see an apparition of your loved one. Well, it's just a, it's a hallucination that's maybe informed by, you know, your, your psychic abilities. So you're getting new information from them, but it's just, they're not really there. But we have all of these other cases of people, um, some of them living people who in out-of-body experiences have gone and appeared as apparitions Mm -hmm. to other people, Mm -hmm. they have a conscious memory of what was said in this interaction, and the person they appeared to has a memory of them showing up and saying the same things in Mm -hmm. that conversation. So there we have the very same phenomenon of the apparition, but we have somebody with the subjective experience Mm -hmm. of being present there. And, um... Hornell Hart, in the 50s or 60s, did a very systematic study comparing apparitions of living people to apparitions of the deceased, mm-hmm. and said, look, these are the same phenomena. They have all of these similarities and characteristics. And so if we've got living people who remember being these apparitions, it only makes sense to say that, the, that there is a subjective experience of the deceased behind the apparitions of the deceased as well. So that that's one of the big things that I think puts a nail in the coffin of the living I, I want to probe that a yeah. little
0: more because as you were describing it, it struck me that it could be interpreted in the opposite way, that since living <laughs> individuals are capable of, I think of it sometimes as bilocation, mm-hmm. I can project an apparition of myself to right. a distant location where this apparition might engage in a conversation with another person and because I'm bi locating, I could be simultaneously aware of myself talking to you and having a conversation with another person a hundred miles away and right. they'll see me as an apparition and they'll have a record of having had this conversation <laughs> with me as well why wouldn't that potentially account for apparitions of the deceased? If I can project an apparition that looks like me, why can't Mm -hmm. I project an apparition that looks like my deceased grandfather?
1: That shows already that even while we're here living, we have a consciousness that isn't bound by space, um, doesn't appear to be bound by time either. Mm -hmm. Why then would we think that when the body dies that that consciousness that isn't bound by space would die as well to say well that expansive consciousness is dependent on this particular you know these particular neurons in your brain staying intact that starts to look like a semi ridiculous view honestly i mean we can already tell that consciousness is so much greater than that and i, I don't see any reason To then stick to the hypothesis that consciousness is created by the brain, except that we want to stay with the scientific paradigm that we have had for the last, you know, few hundred years.
0: But people are wedded to that paradigm and and it's very seductive.
1: Yeah. Well, and it has, we've certainly created a lot of, um, a technological progress based on that paradigm. So, there's a lot of things that that paradigm is correct about. Um, and, I mean, it kind of reminds me of the, the revolution going from Newtonian physics to quantum physics uh, when you... People could have made the same argument at the time is, well, you know, we know that objects move in this way, so Newtonian physics must be correct. But the idea is, well, yeah, when we're moving to the next paradigm, it's not that we're saying, well, those parts of the theory weren't correct, but there's something even deeper that can account for that and account for all of this other stuff that looks like anomalies mm-hmm. given the current paradigm. We we need an even bigger picture. We have to continually expand to account for more of the data. And so so, yes, our current physical paradigm accounts for when we're working with physical objects, um, but when we start working with minds, it it falls woefully short. And and in order to to really get at what consciousness is, we're going to have to go beyond that that paradigm.
0: So for you, some of the best evidence are instances in which a person uh, has witnesses an apparition of a deceased individual with which they can engage in interactive
1: dialogue? Um, Well, no, I think the thing that's the most striking for me and the most evidential for me is the reciprocity. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we have that in apparition cases. We have that in uh, dream cases and even some poltergeist cases. But I think the real clincher for me is when we look at not just reciprocal apparitions involving living people, but we look at reciprocal apparitions involving those who are having near-death experiences, so people who are momentarily dead and appear at a distance, but also children, or or even adults, but, but children talk about this as well, children who have memories of having died in a previous life, and they also remember what happened after they died. So their body was permanently dead. Mm-hmm. They and they have many of the same experiences that near-death experiencers have. So they have this feeling of coming out of their body. I often talk about going up, mm-hmm. uh, floating above their body. They view things that are happening to their loved ones that they've left behind. They often have memories of things that happened surrounding their funeral. They have. Um, memories of interacting with other deceased people in this period before coming back into a new body. Mm-hmm. And specifically, there are cases where these intermission memories include memories of having appeared as apparitions mm-hmm. to people left behind. So the child remembers having been an apparition and somebody remembers seeing them as an apparition. Or they remember having gone to their loved one in a dream and given them specific information, and that person um, who is is still alive when the the deceased person is reborn into a new body, when you go back and talk to that person, they can verify, yes, I did have that dream um, and was given that information. Um, And there are even a couple of poltergeist cases like that where, yeah, the children, remember, having had physical effects on objects. Um surrounding their previous families, and the the previous family can verify that it happened, so at least have you have those examples where you've got corroboration from both sides, and once you have that, I don't see why why we need living agent side to um to account for these things the The simplest explanation seems to be that what seems to be going on is what's going on. And we have to adjust our paradigm um, and our theory in order to explain how that's possible. But it seems clear that it's happening. Mm-hmm. The question is how?
0: You've also looked into, as we were talking about earlier, the mysterious phenomenon known as telephone calls from the <laughs> dead.
1: Yes. Um, so this is just... It's not actually something that I set out to research, but it's something that I have seen over and over again, uh, in all of the different literature that I have encountered and in people that I have met, um, who will tell me about their telephone calls from the dead. One of my very good friends, um, had her aunt, her deceased aunt call her on the phone. And this is, I mean, it's, it sounds like something from, you know, uh, haunted house television show or something. You don't expect that the deceased can just call you up on the phone. Uh, but in a way, I think it's a lot like, um, a modern version of apparitions. It And it may actually be something that is somehow easier for the deceased to communicate, um, through the through the electronics of a telephone, um, than necessarily having a visual apparition in front of you. Or
0: maybe it's easier for the living to uh, accommodate. Well, it may, right? That.
1: Yeah, it may be on both sides. Um, it does still seem that there is there's some level of psychic receptive capacity that you have to have. Um, and the reason I say that is because it does seem to happen more frequently to people who have other psychic experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, so there seems to be, just like to receive telepathic messages or um, mediumship messages, you have to be able to tune into a certain... Uh, wavelength in your brain, or at least quiet a lot of the other wavelengths. And certain people are more able to do that and more able to hear that than others. Um, but, uh, you've had an experience that is um, very similar. You said you just heard white noise. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder, I wonder about that experience. I mean, if there actually was maybe a voice message there, but it's not always easy to hear. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean I don't know about your other psychic experiences um, but I think there are probably also a lot of telephone calls actually th- it is very common for people to get calls where they will pick up the phone and they won't hear anything or or they'll hear noise like you in your case and I wonder too if you know the the deceased are trying to make an effort to, to connect um, but you're you're not able to get everything that they're trying to send you.
0: They're well, and it may be if I were more sensitive in the white noise, I might have heard. Uh, in this case, Elizabeth Maybe. Targ happened to right because uh, I was dreaming about my deceased friend Elizabeth when, right. when the phone rang woke me up and there's just white noise and, and not only that it happened just at the moment when in my dream i'm congratulating her on all the after-death <laughs> communications she initiated and uh, some of which involve physical phenomenon and i said especially the physical ones <laughs> ring ring
1: <laughs> right. yes yeah it, it's it's too coincidental to be a coincidence yeah. i'd say yeah um it's it certainly, I mean, I myself, you know, I've studied these phenomena, but I'm not a particularly intuitively gifted person. I um, mean, I've, I've never had a telephone call from the dead. I've never seen an apparition. Um, I tend to have dreams that will give me information that then turns out to be true, um, that I couldn't have known in another way. And I get a lot of synchronicities. Um, and I think maybe that's because I'm not, uh, at least when I'm awake, I'm not very good at receiving (laughs) uh, this other information. So synchronicity is the best way that uh, that information can get my attention. Mm -hmm. It's like if, unless it shows up on somebody's cell phone in front of my face on a map, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pay attention to it. Even then it took me a little while.
0: It has to hit you over the head. Right.
1: I mean, I, I think, I think so. Um, So. Each of our styles of, of communicating with those who crossed over or um, just receiving you know, general telepathic information from, from other people, our, our styles of getting that are different depending on our personalities and our capacities.
0: Sharon, where do you think this interest in, in the afterlife, specifically your interest, but also the community uh, as a whole, where do you think it's heading?
1: I think it's heading to a big paradigm shift i i really I think there's always been a tension between what is called the scientific paradigm, but it's there's a lot of physicalist dogma in there, so it's i mean true science i feel like is is always looking to ask questions, always looking to explore always looking to um to see where the evidence leads, um, and unfortunately there are a lot of scientists who don't want to see that the evidence is leading us to a non-physicalist paradigm, but but at the same time, even while the physicalist mechanistic paradigm has been reigning in science, you know, I'm not sure what the exact statistics are, but it's a majority of the public, even in Western countries um, who are very, you know, um science aware, I mean this is very much a part of our culture, but a majority of people still believe in an afterlife. They they believe in God, they believe in a higher intelligence. So there's always been a tension between what science is saying about this and what people's personal beliefs and people's personal experience has been. Because I think that if those beliefs have persisted for so long, it's because people can't disbelieve what they've experienced themselves. When you have experienced it, you know that, that the, you know, diehard physicalists don't know what they're talking about. They, they, and, and, and maybe through no fault of their own, like they haven't had the experiences that would show them that their, that their point of view is simply mistaken. But once you've had those experiences, you can't just write them off. You and and so many people who have them, that's the beginning of exploring uh so much else. Um and seeing so I I think that that tension has always existed there, but I think now in the last 50 or so years more and more scientists and um, other highly educated people have started to be willing to take the risk of talking about their experiences in public and of exploring scientifically in the laboratory or in the field those experiences in the wider public. So we've we've developed a really strong evidential basis for these anomalies things that are anomalistic on the physicalist paradigm and we're we're finally too starting to develop more nuanced um, non materialist theories and I think once we get a once we get a good alternative theory a Something that not only helps us to make sense of this, but actually helps us to make predictions um, that we're going to see a real sea change within the larger community. So I think we're 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 close to that.
0: Now I'm under the impression. Correct me if I'm wrong. That a, a lot of these ideas that we've been discussing you developed since you left academia. And I wonder, uh, if you were to return to academia now, thinking about it the way you do, what do you think the receptivity would be like?
1: So I can really only talk about philosophy, because that's what I have the most experience in. And I have noticed that in the 10 or 11 years since I left academia, that there has already been a shift within philosophy, um, uh, specifically to to do with the physicalist paradigm. So philosophers have started to take much more seriously uh, both the idea of panpsychism, this idea that everything is conscious um, in the universe, and the idea of idealism, which is ultimately everything is mental Mm -hmm. in the world. And the physical is like a subset of the mental. It's one one thing that consciousness can do is to have physical experiences. And even within mainstream philosophy, there are a lot more people talking about this now, which I think is is fantastic, because I, I knew about it when I was still in academia, and I was intrigued by that, although I was coming still from a much more mechanistic viewpoint, and, and a um, a viewpoint of sort of seeing the physical and the mental as two different sides of the same coin, two different aspects. It's called dual aspect theory. But I'm, but it was still very fringe at the time. And now it's getting a lot more respect and, and which attracts more researchers, which means that the field can move forward much more quickly because more people are thinking about it, more people are talking about it and, you know, refining each other's ideas. Uh, it, it helps to have more than, you know, a handful of people uh, thinking along those lines.
0: Sharon Rawlett, this has been a delightful conversation. We've covered a lot of ground from ethics to apparitions. And, and of course, with your strong background in philosophy, thank you so much for being with me.
1: Thank you so much, Jeff. It's been a pleasure.
0: And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. <laughs> All right.